Okay. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for this opportunity tonight to to get together in time of fellowship and study, to focus on your word tonight. And tonight we're also just lifting up Donna Riley with the cancer that she's going through, that she's been battling. The tumors are back, and we just ask that your will be done in her life, that you work a miracle in her life if that's your will, and just have your healing hand upon her. We ask that you just watch over our world that's such a a difficult situation that we all live in these days with so many things going on and sin just running rampant and more now than it's been in a long time. And we just ask that you, your Holy Spirit works through all of us and all of those in the world to just keep us at peace and that your will be done in all of our lives. We want to pray for VBS with VBS prep starting this week. And we also want to give praise for the successful rummage sale that you brought people that just bought so many things and helped us raise so much money towards our VBS this year. We ask that during VBS you bring many, many children to to the church here so that we can witness to them and share the gospel with them and just bring them to you, and that your Holy Spirit works in them and just saves them so that they won't be lost souls in this world. We also want to pray for Julia Jackson with her neck surgery that's coming up and just the pain that she's going through and all the difficulties that you just have your healing hand upon her, that you are the great physician and anything can be done if it's your will, that you have the power over all sin and all pain and all of our health. We ask you to, from now and moving forward, just bless Elizabeth's wedding coming up and that you, your hand works in all of the preparations and just that all obstacles are moved out of the way so that it just flows through just naturally and as you would have it in our marriage, that you just set all those things up for her. We want to pray for Linda tonight, whose ankles are swollen and sore, and she can't be with us tonight because of that. And we just ask that you continue to work with her and just be with her, comfort her, ease her pain. And text her roommate who's back in the hospital who also has water in his lungs. So we just ask you dry that water out and you just bring his health back and give him his strength so that he'll be well. And our friend David's grandfather who also has water in his lungs, just be with him and heal him as well. And I see you watch over Bob and Jeannie Erickson who are going through so many things these days with Bob's health and Jeannie just trying to take it all on her shoulders. I just ask that you you work in her to help her to just lay those all those worries and those troubles upon you that she doesn't have to worry about those things, that all of those things are in your will. I just ask that you bless the, the study tonight and that you help us all to just have a heart to study your word deeper and deeper every day so we can have a better understanding and a, a closer fellowship with you. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Okay. So let's do a little bit of review in case anybody missed it from last week, just to kind of go over some of the brief points of what we talked about last week. So obviously we're studying inductive Bible study, if you weren't aware of that. And in, in, in inductive Bible study, we look at the information that comes to us, and we look at the information that we're studying and come to conclusions based on the text and what it presents to us, rather than having our own thoughts and trying to find biblical scripture to support our thoughts. We want to use the Bible's text to give us what ideas we should be focusing on in our lives. And the next tools that we used and talked about were OIA. Who can tell me what OIA is? Anybody remember? What those stand for? Observation, interpretation, and application. Very good. So with the observation, we're looking at just what does the text say? Just the who, what, when, where, important words, phrases, ideas, just straightforward facts. And then when we move into interpretation, we want to look at what, 
what does the text mean or what do our observations that we've come up with, what do they mean? So we dig deeper in that and we use the these five rules basically for interpretation that we interpret literally or biblically. We study in context. So we're always going to read some verses before, some verses after, maybe a chapter before, a chapter after. Like we talked about, kind of a general rule that most often applies, but not always, is like 10 verses before and 10 verses after to get an idea what's being, what the context is that we're talking about. Next would be to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the Bible kind of work as its own dictionary or its own encyclopedia, just to kind of... Anytime we have a word that we're trying to get a deeper meaning of, we can look to the Bible and other places it's used and get a deeper meaning to what it is or a clear understanding of what that word or that phrase may mean. The next one was to use it that the New Testament takes precedent over the Old Testament. And so if they're talking about the same sort of thing in the New Testament and they've talked about it in the Old Testament, we're going to apply the New Testament versus the Old Testament. And then the fifth one, and probably one of the more important ones on that, is no opinions. We don't want to interject our opinions into the Bible. We want to just let the Scripture speak for itself. And then the A of the OIA would be application. And there we're looking at how should I respond. And so the first one of the things when we, we have an observation point that we're looking at, we want to see if that's an example to follow, a sin to forsake, an error to avoid, a promise to believe, or a command to, to obey. And then after we've decided which one of those it is, we want to look at what action we want to take. So we're going to define and be specific about what action that will be. If we're not specific, we tend to get real general, and then we don't tend to follow through. So if we're able to be specific on our application, that helps us to actually do it, which is actually the most important point. There's no point in applying it if we're not actually going to do it. So tonight, we're going to be speaking more on making an outline and then chart what's called charting the passage. So to start out with making an outline, first we outline, then we chart. And there's two different types of outlines that we're going to be talking about. There's the simple outline form and there's the epistle outline form. And with the simple outline form, this is a form that's used if we're going to outline a passage of text, a parable, poetry, prophecy, anything where we're looking at just a grouping of texts. It's the most common outline that we'll use. And then the second one is the epistle outline. The epistle outline is only used if you're going to outline an entire epistle. So you're looking at the whole thing together. So it's not going to get used a lot because it's not often that we're studying and outlining an entire epistle in one sitting. We usually break it down in different parts and get deeper into that. So on that one, you'll only use if you're doing the entire outline of the epistle at once. It is a useful tool to have when you do use it. So we'll go ahead and get into the simple outline first. So when you start the simple outline, you're going to define what text that you're looking at, what area of scripture, and you're going to read the text several times, get an idea what the main idea or the theme of that text is. And then next you'll break that into different groups by dividing it into specific points that are being expressed throughout the text. And then when outlining, you want to remember to note that the verses that cover the point that you're talking about. And it'll be a little bit more clear as we get further into it and start looking at some examples of outlines. So to make it a little more clear, we're going to actually go ahead and turn to Psalm 128 and go through that to help clarify things a little bit. Good evening. So does anybody want to read Psalm 128? Any volunteers out there? If not, I will. Okay, go ahead.
So it's a, it is a, an entire chapter, but at the same time, it's a, a small text. So it's a really simple one to go in and outline. So in that, the theme, you know, looking at that, what would any, what would you guys come up with for a theme for that? Fear of the Lord. That's good. And when you, when you're doing an outline, you'll come up with a theme and everybody else may come up with a theme that's different or worded differently. You may get the same theme that's just expressed differently, or you may get completely different themes sometimes just depending on what the Holy Spirit's speaking to you when you're studying that scripture. It won't always be exactly the same. It's usually going to be similar because it's the same text, but the Holy Spirit works in each of us differently to guide us to what God wants us to get out of that scripture when we're studying at that time. So for the example here, we have the fear of the Lord is good. That would be a uh, appropriate theme for that. And then we want to go ahead and break up the rest of the text to explain kind of what the different points of that would be. And if you look in your pages, I think you have a, a little diagram of it. It goes through Psalm 128 if you want to look at that too. Where the first one says the fruit of fearing the Lord. So if you look at verses 1 through 4, it's talking about the, the fruit of when you fear the Lord. What are you going to get by fearing the Lord? And it expresses that those who walk in obedience with him, they'll eat the fruit of their labor. They'll have the blessings of prosperity, that your wife will be a fruitful vine. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. That Those are things that we'll have. If we have a fear of the Lord and we live with a fear of the Lord, that's the kind of fruit that's going to come out of our life. And so the second point that we look at is here it says the happy results. So the happy results of fearing the Lord. And if you look at that, it says that you'll see prosperity in Jerusalem. You'll be able to live to see your children's children, children's children, and there'll be peace in Israel. So that's kind of, if you look in your Bible, most of the Bibles probably have it broken down in the same way where you have verses 1 through 4, and then there's a little space, and then verses 5 and 6. So that's why when we were taking this course with Pastor Drew, he wouldn't let us look in our Bible because we had to figure out where to break them down ourselves. He wouldn't let us go off of what somebody else already did in the Bible. So that's a simple outline, and you can understand why it's called a simple outline because it's just pretty straightforward. It's very simple. With a little verse of text that size, we just did a real simple outline. A second example that's in your books is of the book of Ezra. So you can use a simple outline for doing a much larger grouping of text as well. So we're not going to actually read through that one because it's the entire book of Ezra and wouldn't make sense to read that entire thing right now just for the lack of time. And so in that example, the application of the outline remains the same, only you're going to go kind of take a viewpoint from a little bit further back, like a 30,000-foot view on the Scripture. So you'll break your points up into bigger sections, and then you'll have subsets. So instead of just like a 1, 2, 3, you'll have a 1, and then maybe an A, B, C, 2, A, B, C, and break that down. So you can see with Ezra, they have the theme of rebuilding the temple. And then the first point would be rebuilding under Zerubbabel in chapters 1 through 6. And then they break that down further by saying the first return of the captives, which was in verse or in chapters 1 and 2. And then the rebuilding of the temple in chapters 3 through 6. And then the second point would be reforms under Ezra. And then the second return of the captives would be the First subset A, chapters 7, 1 through 8, 32. And then the reforms or the rebuilding of the people in chapter 8, 33 through 10, 44. So that kind of makes sense if you're looking at a bigger text. You want to look at the bigger points and then break those down further. Now with the epistle outline, it's a little bit different and it can be applied to most epistles. So if you're going to study an entire epistle and you want to do that, then this is the, the form that you would use. And the epistle outline, we don't have a theme that we look for because we're looking at the entire epistle. So the theme would really just be the, the title of that epistle, whether it be Titus or Philippians or 
or sorry, Titus or Timothy or any of those. Yes. An epistle is basically just a word, a different word for a letter. So the epistle of, of Titus would be, you know, Paul writing to Titus. And so with epistles, they're broken down a little bit differently. So we, instead of us looking for the specific points, there's some specific things in it that we look for that we'd look for in any normal letter. So the first one would be an introduction. The introduction is usually, you know, the first verse or two, and it's usually just a greeting, a thanksgiving, that sort of thing. Second would be a statement of purpose. Third, the main teaching, which is going to be the largest portion of it, and four, a closing. And those are broken down just like we would generally write a letter. If you were going to write a letter to somebody that, you know, or a formal email, because I don't know too many people that write many letters anymore. But if you were going to write those, you would usually start it out with an introduction, mention why you're writing the letter, and then go through all those points of backing up why you're writing it, and then some kind of a closing statement. So with the introduction, it's like I said, usually in the first few verses of the book, it usually includes either a greeting or a thanksgiving or both of them but doesn't always have both of them. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. The next would be the statement of purpose, giving the, the reason that they're doing that writing. The main teaching, which is going to be the majority of the text of an epistle, which that's the area where we're really going to break it down into main ideas that are expressed in that main teaching. That's when we'll start breaking it down like we would do in a simple outline, looking at what grouping of text is to each point that we're going to find as we read through it. And then the closing is pretty much straightforward. It's just saying goodbye, salutations, saying you know whatever hopes you may have for somebody. So we're going to go ahead and look a little closer at that, also to help to make it a little clearer, hopefully. So if everybody wants to turn to the book of Titus. And this we're going to go ahead and read it, but we're going to read it in little sections first. I'll give everybody a minute to get there. So first, I'll go ahead and read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge, knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promises, promised before the beginning of time and which now is his appointed season. He has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Savior. So that's verses 1 through 4, and it has a greeting. It doesn't really have a thanksgiving in this one. It's just a straightforward greeting. We can see that Paul is the one writing it, and we can see that Paul is writing the epistle to Titus. So the introduction is usually just the first few verses like that, and maybe one or you know, six or eight, but not, not very long usually. Then the second statement would be, you know, chapter 1, verse 5, would be the statement of purpose. So would anybody like to read verse 5? So there, that's kind of why he's writing the letter. He says, you know, he starts out by saying, hi, this is Paul. Hope everything's well. Now I'm moving into why I did it. And there's two reasons that he's writing. One is to set the church ministry, set in order the church ministry and to appoint elders. So those are the two points that we're looking for in, in the main teaching. Each thing, he does, each thing he talks about will kind of point towards that statement of purpose. So now we'll move into the main teaching area. So here we're looking at chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 14. 
So I'll go ahead and read the first few here. I'll go ahead and read. We're going to break this, break it down. I'll get ahead a little bit here. We're going to break it down into three sections, as you can see in your, your outline, if you probably have a copy of that in front of you, with the A, B, and the C. So we'll go through chapter 1, verse 6 through 16 first. So I'll go ahead and start that. Make sure I don't go too far. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what, he is, what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This, is a, this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So that basically is talking about qualifications for being an elder and the work. So next we're going to look at Christian duties in church and sound doctrine. So would anybody like to read chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, verse 11? We're going to go through to 3.11, but if somebody else wants to read, that's fine, too. Okay.
And so you can see those are all talking about the Christian duties as Christians, how we should be in church and what good, solid, sound doctrine kind of is exampled by. So that would be the, the second point of the main three ideas. And then the third one is personal concerns. So in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, it says, As soon as I send, send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide more urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. So those are the personal concerns. It's kind of the third point that he's referencing there. And then the closing, which is chapter 3, verse 15, just says, Everyone with, with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith, and grace be with you all. So now we've kind of built an outline that we've broke that down, as you can see from the example that you have in your handout of Titus, and it breaks all those down into that. So now we're going to really get into the OIA, or the observation, interpretation, and application. And this is where you can really get deep into the Scripture, and you can start looking at all the different important words and phrases that come out when you're reading it that... The Holy Spirit speaks to you as you're reading it and tells you, like, you know, I want you to write that phrase down. I want you to further study that word. Whatever you feel as you're reading through it, those are what you're going to start putting down in your outline. And you can see you know, this would be the, the next sheet you have on your handout that says it's basically the simple outline form. So if you were reading a text, you would come up with your theme as you've read through it a couple times, got an idea what they're talking about, what idea God is trying to express to us in that will break down our outline and you can see as it on this particular form it has three lines but it might be two items it might be 10 different things depending on what you're studying and what points kind of jump out at you as you're reading through it and then it says you know vs next to it which stands for verse you want to write down with each one of those points what verse it's located at so that when you're going through and doing the charting afterwards you'll be able to reference back to it and be able to compare other things. So then you you have that all filled out, and we start the charting. And the first points of our observations that we're going to use in the charting, which the charting is when we start filling out the observation, interpretation, and application on our forms, the first points are going to be the ones that you've listed above is your point one, two, three, five, whatever numbers you have. And put those in, but you want to leave space between a lot of space in between each one because that's just the main point. And you're going to add in in your observation those other keywords and phrases, the who, the what, when, where. Not so much the why because why is usually part of the interpretation more than the observation. So you're going to put all those things in for each section so it'll get pretty long. You can have pages and pages of the charting going on as you study deeper and deeper into a, into a text. Even if it's a short piece of text, you start looking at all the different points in it, and then we start looking at interpretation for all those different points. It can get pretty lengthy. So you could spend hours and hours studying just a really short verse and get a really deep meaning out of the words and the text that's in there. So... To talk a little bit more on the interpretation that we, we've filled in our observations and now we're not going to go through all the different depth of observations that you could get into because that would get really lengthy for the night. However, we will look at the, the outline that they did and kind of take those points and then highlight in reference to our interpretation how we can kind of get further meaning of, of those particular phrases that we had. So an example to that would be that we observed that the one who penned Titus was Paul. So we can look at Paul. He's the who, verse 1, 1. And we could say, well, who is Paul? And if you were looking to express that to somebody who doesn't know the Bible or doesn't know it very well, they might not know who Paul is. They might not know that he wrote you know, a large portion of the New Testament. 
they might not know too much about him at all. So we can go and you can look in your concordance and look up, you know, where is Paul talked about? Where can we learn something about who Paul is or where Paul comes from? So an example, we can go to Acts 21.39, just as an example. And so in Acts 21.39, it says, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. (coughs) Excuse me. And so from that, we can we learn a little bit more about Paul. We learn Paul's a Jew. We learn that Paul is from Tarsus. We learn that he well, we learn that he is from a city of Cilicia and not a citizen of an ordinary city. So that means that, that must be a fairly well-known city. And we, if we wanted, we could go further and take that word and. Put it as an observation point to kind of help us solidify who Paul is. And you could look deeper and deeper and really get to know Paul. And getting to know Paul is going to help you to understand the words he's writing to Titus to understand that deeper because you kind of understand where he's coming from and what he's been through to get to where he is. Uh, we could turn to Philippians 3.5. And in Philippians 3.5, it says... Uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So from that, we can see that Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. We know he was a Jew. We know he was a Pharisee. We know that he studied, studied the scriptures intensely with zeal. And so we kind of get an idea of who he was and so it helps us to understand further who that, who Paul was. So the next point we could look at would be, you know, what was the relationship of Titus and Paul? We know that Paul wrote the letter to Titus, so who were they to each other? We just know he's writing them a letter, but we don't know if there's any background or anything else about them if we don't study. So for that, we could look at, uh, we'll go over to Second Corinthians. We'll look at a couple verses there. We'll look at uh, 2.13, and then we'll go to 8.23. But 2.13 says, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So there we know that without finding Titus, he's, he's feeling anxious or feeling without peace. And if we turn over to 8.23, just a couple pages over. It says, as for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the church, churches in an honor to Christ. So now we know that he, he has a close relationship with Titus because when he couldn't find him, he was left without peace. He, they're co-workers. He considers them a brother. And so it's kind of a, we can see that it's a, a mentor-type relationship that, that Paul has kind of brought Titus up and he is you know, works with him. So it gives a, a little bit more understanding of why Paul would be writing to Titus in the first place to kind of give him direction and continue that, that relationship with him and, and to help set into place the ideas that he's talking about here to appoint elders and sound doctrine and the organization of the church. So now we can move on to our next point, which was to set the ministry in order, which was verses 1 through 5, or one, verse 1, 5. And here, I'm going to go to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming, 
Instead, speaking the the truth of love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so through that, it kind of gives us an idea of a further understanding of to set the ministry in order. So we could see kind of what the scripture said in Titus that we were reading. And here it's kind of giving us a little bit more understanding of that setting ministry in order. Another example would be in 1 Peter 5.3. In 1 Peter 5, 3, it says, not lording, over it, those entrusted, not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So that's another example of the setting the ministry in order is that you want to have people that are overseeing that aren't going to lord over their, their authority over the people that are coming to the church, but that they work with them. And so those are kind of all, when we look up these different scriptures, we want to look to things that point back to our observation point, that give further meaning and understanding to those specific points. So the next point we look at is appointing elders. And so appointing elders we could look at, and as I go through these, I've just come up with a a couple of examples on, on some of them and one example on others. If you were doing a study on your own and you really wanted to get into it, you might find eight or ten examples, or you might find two or three, depending on how in-depth you really want to study a particular scripture and how much time you might have. You could spend you know, days studying one little scripture just because you keep finding more things in it that kind of drive you further and further. It's almost like you know, people on the Internet these days, you start looking at one page and it takes you somewhere else, and then it takes you somewhere else, and the next thing you know, you're off somewhere else but that's why we have our outline to kind of keep us on track but you keep finding other things you want to study further that way so for appointing elders we're going to look at first timothy three one through seven and it says here's a trustworthy saying whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone... And so that's, that's, I think, good on that. goes to... Sorry, I looked at the wrong line there for a second. So, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or maybe, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And so, if we look at that, there's a lot of similarities to that as what we read in Titus. And then it goes a little bit further and gives some other examples here as well. And if we look over at Acts 6.3, is another example. And Acts 6.3 says, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So again, we're looking at somebody that would be full of the spirit and full of wisdom. So those are the kind of people that you'd be looking to to appoint to be elders. And if you continue to look through the Bible, you could find other examples as well. But those are just a couple to give an understanding to us. And then for the next point would be elders' qualifications and work. And for the qualifications and work, we could look at a lot of the same references that we just talked about for appointing elders they should have those same qualifications to fill those positions. And then the next point would be Christian duties in church and sound doctrine. And that's talked about in chapter 2.1 through 
And so if we look at Proverbs 22.6 would be a good example on that one. And Proverbs 22.6 says, Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. And that would be a, a good point to... what sound doctrine would be and how as Christians what our duty should be another example would be in Romans uh, Romans 13 1 and it says let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established the authorities that exist have been established by God so as Christians those are things that we should do in our duties we should be Subject to the governing authorities because God has established those authorities. We may not agree with them. We may get frustrated by them, but God appoints them, so we should be subject to them. And those are just more points that point back to Christian duties in the church and what sound doctrine would be. So now the next point were personal concerns. That... Paul had written personal concerns, and there were two of them that he broke it down into, and that was, those were in chapters, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. The first one was caring for the brothers. And another example to understand, you know, what is caring for the brothers or caring for each other in Christ, what would that be? In Colossians 3.12, we find it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. So those are the kinds of things if you're trying to understand what is it what does he mean by caring for the brothers, that's an example of that points back to that same point. What is caring for your brothers? It's to be somebody that's compassionate, kind, has humility and gentle and is patient with other people. And then his other personal concern was producing fruit. And still in Colossians, if we go to one, Colossians 1.10, it says, So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So if we're producing fruit, we want to understand what producing fruit is in the life of a Christian. That's an example of it, that if we're, we live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, We'll be bearing fruit in every good work. So everything that we're doing is bearing fruit because we're living in Christ and doing work for Christ, thus glorifying God and bearing fruit. And then finally, for that outline, the closing, which would be uh, chapter 3, verse 15, and it said, love us in faith. That was kind of a key phrase that was listed in there. And so if we want to understand what is love us in faith, or loving in faith, we could look at John thirteen thirty five, and it says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So by loving in faith, or loving each other, then we're able to show other people that we're disciples of God, just by the examples that we're living in our lives. And then he finished off by saying, Grace be with you. And at chapter 3, verse 15 as well. So, grace be with you. We might want to look further, you know, what is grace and understand grace and how can that apply in our lives. So one example, one of the examples I found is Ephesians 2.8. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. So Paul's wishing grace upon Titus. And so it's something he's expressing that isn't something Titus can get on his own. It's a gift from God. And then finally on that would be Romans 6.14 was another example that says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So if, you're, if grace is with you, then that, that means that you're no longer living under the law, that you have hope, you've been given grace by God, and so sin is no longer our master. So you can see just those few points we broke down gets quite large compared to just the text of Titus. It's not, and that's just a little piece of kind of touching the, the surface of it. Whereas if you guys are studying it on your own, you could really dig really deep into it and get more and more meaning out of the whole thing. And then finally, 
is the application, which all the rest of it is nice and you learn something, but it really doesn't have any meaning unless we apply those things in our lives. So we want to remember when we take our observation and then we take the interpretation, the interpretation points back to our observation. And so when we take the application, we want to make sure the application points back to the observation. Because sometimes in our interpretation, we're looking at several different scriptures that help to support it. We don't want our application to point necessarily to other scriptures. We want it to point back to the observation point that the Holy Spirit spoke to us when we were looking through the text originally and kind of drew to us that, like, I want you to write this down. I want you to study this. So we got a better meaning of what that means. And now we want to look at how we can apply that observation in our lives. And so before we can apply it in our lives, we have to understand what that application is or what that observation point is. Is it an example to follow? Is it a sin to forsake, an error to avoid, a promise to believe, or a command to obey? And pretty much any observation point we look at, one of those is going to apply in one way or another. And like I said before last week, that sometimes you might find something And for one person, it would be an example to follow. And for another person, it might be a sin to forsake, depending on where you're at in your walk and what sins we struggle with. We all have our own own sins we deal with in our lives. And so you want to look at which one of those apply to you. And once you define what it is that applies, then you have to come up with on your own specific action you're going to take to use that in your life. And again, that's the hard part. Because that's where kind of the rubber meets the road that are you going to do something or are you just going to read about it? it, So that's the hard part for all of us, I think, to really take it, study it, and not just, you know, come to church on Sunday or Wednesday or Bible study. But you study it and then you look, okay, what in my life needs to change to make me more like Christ? Because the point of the Bible is to mold us into the image of Christ. That's what our life should be focused on as we're living so we kind of want to apply all those things in our lives to really help to mold us into, into that image of Christ. And that's the outline. So next we're going to move into Hebrew poetry. Yes. Yes. Well, those are where, like we talked about last week, some of the different tools that you have. When you study, you know, we talked about, you know, how do you study? Obviously, you read the Bible, you pray. Those are pretty much everybody studying the Bible in any level is doing those things. And then you have other tools that are available, such as uh, concordance, whether you have a Bible that has a concordance in the back or you might have a Strong's concordance at home or a blue letter Bible on the Internet or a Bible app on your phone, different things. You can look up those keywords or phrases, and then from that, it'll give you scripture references of where you can go and, and where that word may be used somewhere else, and you can take a look at it and see if it's used in the same way at, at that place to apply it to your same observation or if it's something completely different. Like if, you, if your observation point was love, you'll find hundreds of references on love in the Bible, and not all of them are going to be specific to the point you're reading in any particular text. But the Internet's great these days. That, you know, I, I don't own a Strong's Concordance at home, but I have one on my phone. I have one on my computer. That's just through things like Blue Letter Bible. You can just hit tools on it, and it'll tell you, you know, where any particular word in the Bible is used everywhere else in the Bible. And from there you can look at you know, the original Greek or Hebrew and see what the, the original def, what the definition is in the original language and kind of get a deeper meaning of what you're looking at. So we're going to go ahead and move on to Hebrew poetry now. Still got quite a bit to go through, so hopefully I can push through some of this. So Hebrew poetry, uh, when you're studying Hebrew poetry and you're going to outline it, you're going to use the same simple outline form. That's one we use for pretty much everything except for a whole epistle. And so with Hebrew poetry, it's not quite like English language where we have uh, rhymes, where we have words that rhyme together. In Hebrew poetry, they still use rhyme, but in a different way. It's more of an imagery rhyme. So you take images that are going to have to do with another image, just like we have rhyming words. The word has something to do with the next word. They kind of fit together. In Hebrew poetry, they look at the two different images or they look at parallelism, things that kind of fit together 
side by side. So Hebrew poetry is filled with figurative language. Then, so when we, we need to be able to learn to understand the meaning of non-literal or picture language. And those are distinguished. The, one of the distinguishing marks of Hebrew poetry is a correspondence in thought or parallelism between one line and the following line or one section and the following section of a given scripture. And Hebrew poetry uses a lot of repetition, which is good for us because since it's repeated a lot, it helps us to understand what they're talking about, gives us further understanding to the meaning. And there's three basic kinds of parallelism that are taught in earth. Yeah, that are parallel thought in Hebrew poetry. You have synonymous parallelism, which is when an idea is expressed a second or third time in a similar way. So an example would be in Genesis 4.23, it says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamesh, listen to my speech. So he's kind of saying the same thing, like listen to me, and then again, listen to me, but just in a different way. And it's repeated to kind of emphasize what's being talked about. Another example would be in Psalm 51.2, says, wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. So he's basically saying the same thing, two different ways to kind of repeat. And that's kind of how Hebrew poetry works. It isn't necessarily the rhyming words, but they're phrases that have one to do with the other, one text to do, do, do with the next text. The second parallelism would be synthetic parallelism. And here the poet adds to the original, original text. So an example of that would be in Psalm 1.1. Each phrase adds an additional thought to the verse. So to walk with the wicked may be the first stage. To stand with the sinner would be even worse. And then to sit with scoffers would appear to be like the ultimate. So it builds like worse and worse and the absolute worst. And then antithetic parallelism is where a poet contrasts one idea with another. So you would have an example of Proverbs 15.2 where it says, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable but the mouth of fools spouts folly. And we hear those a lot when we're reading the Proverbs every Sunday. There's a lot of that type of parallelism being used. And in that example, you can see that the second phrase generally is a negative or a thesis or antithesis of the first phrase. And that's kind of an overview of Hebrew poetry and how you would kind of study it and some guides to understanding it a little clearer. So next, we'll move into parables. And again, it's going to be the simple outline form you would use if you were going to study it and outline it and chart it. And so, what is a parable? Anyone? That's part of the answer. So a parable is going to be a true-to-life story with a spiritual meaning. So... A parable is not going to take a story that has nothing to do with real life. It's going to take a, a situation in real life and then apply spiritual meaning to it. And what that means is that it's going to be something that we can look at and just plainly understand because it's just a normal how we would live and how we see things. It's like, oh, yeah, I can understand. I can relate to that experience. And then it applies a spiritual meaning to that. <clears throat> and so when Jesus taught in parables, there's also an additional purpose. He wanted to obscure the truth from the unresponsive, yet make it plain to those who were responsive. So that's why Jesus was teaching in parables. And in a parable, you might find historic events as illustrations, and it's designed to, to, teach, it's designed to teach a particular truth. Although it's not talking about a specific historic event, even though something that may be similar to an actual historic event, that's not the point that he's trying to teach. It's the parable that just uses that as that true-to-life experience. So guidelines for understanding a parable. First, you want to begin with the immediate context. You know, what is the occasion for telling the story? So why is Jesus telling a parable? Why is he bringing it up? Uh, an example here, we have 15, Luke 15, 1 and 2. says we're actually going to look at Luke 15 and, <clears throat> and the parable of the, the lost sheep. So in Luke 15, 1 and 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that is what kind of started Jesus to teach on the parable, because he knew that the Pharisees were there, and they were scoffing about 
the, the fact that he was with sinners and welcomes them and eats with them. And so he began to teach in a parable. And so what is the explanation of a parable's meaning? And if you look at the parable, it says in Luke fifteen seven, I tell you that in the same way there will be more re- rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. So those are things that are, we're getting the immediate context. So why he was telling the story and then the explanation of the meaning of that story. And then we want to identify the central point of emphasis. So you want to look at the context of the passage before and after the parable. And so here, the central point of emphasis would be in Luke 15.4 is the one lost sheep. So everything in it is kind of pointing towards that one lost sheep. And then we also want to identify irrelevant details. So here, the details that are, we want to see the details that don't mean necessarily to teach any particular truth in the parable they're just there and so in that would be luke fifteen four talking about the 99 safe sheep that everything in the story is pointing to the one sheep not to the 99 the 99 are just there for a comparison and then we also want to identify relevant details so those intended to, the details that are intended to teach some kind of a truth that would be reinforced in the central theme And so all of this points to the story of the prodigal son who was lost but now is found. So all of the parable in that whole situation points to the prodigal son, those who go off and are lost and that are redeemed. So that's kind of an overview for studying parables and, and getting an idea about them. And one of the nice things about parables when you go to chart them you have your observation point of those different things in the parable would be what that what's being told. And the nice part oftentimes is that afterwards, if you read further, Jesus will interpret it for us. So we know we can't mess it up if he's telling us what it means. So you'll read a parable and then later it'll say, and this meant that, that the seed here falling on the rocks meant that it's falling where it has no, has no ground to grow. So it's, it helps us a lot of times. It's picked up by the birds and taken away by sin. So the birds represent sin. And Jesus tells us that, so we know we're not going to interpret it wrong. And now we're going to move into prophecy, which is actually one of my favorite things. That My faith has grown a lot over the years through studying prophecy. And I even tell you know the kids at Sunday school this when we're talking about things. When anything with prophecy comes up, I try to explain to them how things are written hundreds of years ahead and that because of that and that we can see things written and things fulfilled and then things yet to be fulfilled and how we can have confidence that they're true because the prophecies that have been fulfilled. And, and it's something that people tell you, oh, you can't believe the bible it's just a bunch of stories yeah it's a great book but it's not necessarily all true but when you start reading things that were hundreds of years ahead written prophesied fulfilled and still pointed to further truths it's hard not to have faith and see that like obviously we need to follow this book because this is our guide for our life and our eternity so with prophecy again same simple outline form if you're going to chart it And prophecy is found in the Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's all over in the Bible. And, you know, just to give an an overview, in the Old Testament, there's 23,210 verses. And of those, 6,641 of them, or about 28%, contain predictive material or prophetic material. In the New Testament, there's 7,914 New Testament verses and 1,711 of those have predictive material, which is about 21%. So for the overall Bible, you have a total of 31,124 verses in the Bible and 8,352, or about 27%, that contain predictive material. So obviously, if, if God has put over a quarter of the Bible being predictive material, something predicting future events, there's a lot of emphasis on that in the Bible and something that we should really look at and take you know, seriously. And so obviously that's one of the reasons that I like prophecy so much as well. So there's two types of prophecy that you'll see. There's predictive, which is obviously foretelling the future. 
And there's didactic, which is dealing with moral, ethical, and theological truths. So as you read through prophecy, some scripture will have both predictive and didactic prophecy in it. An example of that would be in Zechariah 1, 1 through 15, is didactic, but the following vision is predictive. So a lot of times when you have somebody prophesying, in the beginning they'll talk about the moral issues that are going on at that time and the things that are being done wrong that God has put on that prophet to convey that message and to let whoever, he, whoever he's speaking to or to anybody that reads the scripture to see what, is, what are the theological truths and ethical problems or moral problems going on and then follow that up with future events that are going to happen. And guidelines for dealing with predictive prophecy. Um, literal language. If the, it's just, In this, it would be, take the passage in its most simple form, direct and ordinary meaning, unless there are compelling reasons to do otherwise. Predictive passages should be taken literal unless there are strong reasons to understand them in figurative sense. Always begin by looking at the simple, straightforward meaning what it says is what it means. So if the text is very clear about what it's pointing to or what it's saying, we should go with that. And then we also have a lot of figurative language that's used in prophecy, which prophecy can get very confusing to study because they have some literal language, some figurative language. So with figurative, it's important to identify what, figurative pas- what are figurative passages and you still want to follow the ordinary rules of language in making distinctions between literal and non-literal language. So some of the language may must obviously be taken figurative, and you want to do that unless it would appear, unless otherwise would be absurd. An example of that would be in Joel 2:31. It says the moon turns to blood, or Isaiah 11:1 1 says it talks about a branch growing out of a human being. So that's pretty easy to imagine those as being figurative, that it'd be kind of absurd absurd to think of a human being with just a branch growing out of them that, that's unnatural. And so that would obviously be figurative language. And those are things that we call, and these illustrations are things we call picture language. And it's also seen in Daniel, where you have a lion with wings, a leopard with four wings, and that sort of thing. And the goal is to discern what the figure points to because the things being figuratively represented do have a literal fulfillment to come and so an example here would be john 219 which is christ prediction christ prediction of the temple destroy this temple in three days and i will raise it up and it's explained as christ referring to the temple of his body so even though it is something that is figurative it's pointing to a real historic event that at that time that it was written, was to come. And we know has now been fulfilled. And prophecy oftentimes includes past, present, and future, and it doesn't always work in a linear sense. So it's, it's difficult to study sometimes because in prophecy they might be talking about something that's happening right now, and then they'll point to an event that's going to happen in the future, and then point back to something that happened in the past, and then maybe back to the present again, and they kind of jump around. So... It, it takes a lot of study when you are studying prophecy to really dig into it. And so when you go through an outline and chart and start looking for deeper meaning, sometimes it can help to clarify some of those points. And then that is it. Anybody have any questions on any of those? I actually got through it all. I wasn't sure I'd get into prophecy tonight, so I'm glad I was able to. It's a lot of information, I know. So no questions? Yes. Thank you, Steve. I was going to say I have it at home, but I don't know if we have any here, but Steve has it. Yeah, and if anybody wants more, and you can see the page numbers on, that, on the outlines that you have there, the handouts that you have, you know, it's like it jumps around, it skips... 10 pages here and there, 20 pages here and there possibly. The entire handout that I have is like 91 pages. And it goes through a lot of different things and more examples. And if anybody's interested in getting a digital copy of that, 
let me know. I'm not going to print up 91 pages for you personally, but I can definitely get you a digital copy of it if you'd like, if somebody wants that. Very good. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time of study and fellowship tonight that I just ask that you put on all of our hearts uh, just a heart to study and have your Holy Spirit work in us and just guide us through your word and your scripture so that we can just grow that fellowship with you and, and build a real personal relationship with you in our lives and every day just focus on trying to mold ourselves through your word into your image. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.